Welcome to the Getting Closer to the Cloud podcast. We are Microsoft technologists here to help you raise your rhythm of technical intensity and climb the cloud maturity curve. In each episode, we will talk about the latest and most interesting developments in the Microsoft Cloud and perform deep dives into topics of interest. Hello, I'm Shane Baldacchino, and this is episode four of the Getting Closer to the Cloud podcast. And joining me today, as usual, is the one and only Dr. Peter Stansky. Hello, Shane, and hello, listeners. It's great to be back on another exciting episode of the show, and I'm very excited about what we're talking about today, Shane. Me too, Pete. But as usual, what have you built of late? Well, funny that you ask. Um, You know, I have a passion for tech and a passion for mechanical things and a convergence of both is usually uh, well discovered in cars so i'm a big car fan and uh, given the current macroeconomics i've been thinking about car prices have you noticed how much they've been going up lately so i thought i'd just um, look around and maybe collect a few car prices from online websites using power automate for desktop now i've been looking at those for a little while and the programming language because i thought it would be nice to spin it off into its own self-executing application and dove into um, PowerFX. And PowerFX is essentially a language that's currently used to develop Canvas apps. And uh, here at Microsoft, um, our vision really is to take this language and make it the language for all entire Power Platform. So PowerFX is essentially a low-code general purpose programming language. And it's based on spreadsheet-like formulas, which many of you perhaps have used quite often. And when I started digging myself deeper and deeper and deeper into this. I started looking at other ways of scraping information and uh, putting together self-contained applications, headless web browsers, so on and so forth. And uh, that led me down the path of uh, Python and Beautiful Soup and a whole bunch of other things. What a name. I just love all that. Beautiful Soup. <laughs> so for those- It's a great name. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a soup of HTML markup tags. It is. And style it's a, sheets. It's a Python module. Very good. How about let's let's play a game. I want to play a word association game with you, Pete. Oh, you're gonna you're, you're gonna worry me a lot now. Go ahead. All right. All go. right. Black. White. All right. Up. Down. Azure. Open source. Open source. Yes, open source, Shane. And this is actually the theme of the show today. Uh, so, in this episode of Getting Closer to the Cloud, we're going to explore open source in the context of Microsoft. And Azure, I think it's pretty exciting. I do too, because not too many people may think these words fit together, but you would be surprised on how far as an organization we've come in our open source strategy. It's 2022 open source. It is a thing. It's a real thing from flying around on Mars. And we'll get to that later with the help of uh, F prime through to powering almost all of the ASX or fortune 50 companies around the world. Let's have a chat here and address, I guess, that elephant in the room, Pete, straight up. You know, Microsoft and open source. We've had a checkered past as a company with open source, but we are a company that has gone full circle. Linux is not a cancer. And today we're excited to share with you not only our journey, but we, what we as an organization are doing with open source. Today, we want to challenge your perception of who Microsoft is and what we stand for. So if you're listening to us today, and thank you, listeners, I, know, I really appreciate you uh uh, sharpening your ears, listening to our voices. Um, it's really important to perhaps help you to better understand um, the open source fundamentals. And the open source model is uh, building blocks for the modern world. Bill Gates once actually formally said, hardware must be paid for, but software is something to share, Shane. 
Absolutely. It was interesting reading that. And that was it from like 20 to 30 years ago, probably even further back. <laughs> I think we're showing our age. We are. So look, open source is real. Azure is a great place to run open source. We're all in in open source. And that's a pretty bold statement. But today we use open source in more than 9.5 million components of our software here. I want to start exactly with this statement mm -hmm. because we're far more than a cloud to run Microsoft applications. And I think a lot of people may think, you know, we're just the Windows, Office, SQL server company. Yes, we're proud of our roots. There's no denying that. But there is so much more to the modern Microsoft of today. We have a rich history that dates back to the 70s. And depending on, you know, your relationship with Microsoft, it's pretty amazing. So what I mean by relationship, how long you've been you know, dealing with our products and services, it's amazing to see how far we have come. Today, we're an organization that, integrates open source technologies into our platform. We are releasing innovative technologies as open source. We're giving back. We're enabling open source use cases in the cloud. And, you know, we contribute lots to the ecosystem. Indeed. And Shane, if Azure today is the beating heart of Microsoft, looking inside of Azure is more than just lip service because CBL Mariner is slowly becoming the core of many Azure offerings. And if you're not familiar with CBL Mariner, a bit of homework for you, and the top-line summary really is that it is a internal Linux distribution for Azure and is part of our increasing investment in a wide range of Linux technologies. It's totally open source. You can download it, go to GitHub and grab it. And yes, it is a Linux distribution to power Azure. It's amazing, isn't it? How is that, Pete? A Linux distro for Azure. But before we get back to you know what we're doing at Microsoft and our Azure story, I want to explore a few of the reasons why builders the world over are embracing open source. And to me, I see two main reasons here. The first one is engineering economics. Quite simply put, technology may not be business differentiating. So I know you have an Apple device, I have an Android device. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter, or is it basically the same core functionality today? Open source is such a rich, vibrant ecosystem and organizations will often ask themselves this one simple question. Is this business differentiating? If it's their secret source, then they should build or buy best of breed. But if it's commodity and it doesn't differentiate them from their competitors, well, the choice is simple. Leverage you know, the existing open source projects so you can focus your engineering efforts, your calories on what matters to your business you know, to build your secret source. And Shannon, we think about enterprise search for a moment. The story on search, you know, our search in particular, has, I would say, been the one and done. And today, there are not too many organizations hand-rolling their own search, core search technology platforms right in this space. Now, why would they not be doing it? Well, that's because open source is so good. It's so feature-rich, and it's not really differentiating your business from somebody else's. And uh, you know, building a better search engine, unless you're trying to make search your core business, perhaps, is worth pursuing. But for most organizations, I would argue 99.9%, uh, almost all organizations are using some kind of an engine, perhaps today, that has been based on Apache Lucene. Even the Azure Cognitive Search has its uh, roots sown deeply in Apache Lucene as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lost my train of thought there. But the other dimension is, is open standards. You know, open source software is bringing in new ideas and contributions Look, and as such, the dev community becomes really vibrant and you can share ideas freely. So what I was thinking when I lost my train of thought was my house. Mm -hmm. I've moved away from a closed system in the form of a PLC 
to a software-driven house ultimately with a platform called Home Assistant. And funnily enough, it's in the top 25 most contributed repositories on GitHub. So it's got a thriving ecosystem and very popular. Yeah. It's the ecosystem which makes it what it is. You know, many hands make life work. Similarly, you know, it's much easier to deliver a really amazing outcome if you've got an army of people, you know, delivering upon this. You know, I have plugins for this and I have plugins for that. And I think if you look in the concepts of the cloud, so we'll walk away from my house here, look at the lens of Kubernetes. You know, everyone's using containers these days. Kubernetes is adopted in all public clouds and by providing a useful tool that happens to be an extraction layer, Google's made it you know, easy for people to use multiple cloud service providers or even switch between them. Which is pretty cool because that means you can be multi-cloud and there's no Hotel California checking in, but you can never leave. <laughs> um, and it's really about choice at the end of the day right? in increasing those opportunities for choice, whether it's one cloud or multi-cloud. And if you look at something as simple as WordPress, it constitutes over 43% of websites on the internet today. It's a staggering number. It's a huge figure of a project that has been running for maybe around circa 20 years. And it has lots of plugins. Like I said, plugins for this, plugins for that. And from Dapper uh, to things like Visual Studio Code and to the many other projects that are being incubated in the Apache Foundation, this openness really allows you to build with confidence for your business into the future. And from infrastructure, from data, from frameworks, from tools, gosh, applications of all shapes and sizes, through to management, there is a technical stack for all of your business needs fundamentally. And in these current climate headwinds of uh, economic uncertainty, um, this is something you can almost bet your business on. And again, to quote uh, Linus's law, uh, which states, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Yeah. So there is actually additional benefit of stability and hopefully uh, fewer bugs and uh, attack vectors for bad actors. Exactly. What a what a saying there, Linus's law, right? <laughs> Add that to the list. But let's make it real, Pete. And I know you love space because who doesn't? But yes. this is a prime example. I mentioned Mars earlier on the show. The Mars Ingenuity helicopter, you know, probably a bit more going on than the drone that, you know, our listeners may have. It's amazing. It sure is. And look, I'm still waiting for my Stargate to teleport me straight to Mars. I, I couldn't handle the, uh, you know, six to nine months of being stuck in a little capsule. It's bad enough uh, sitting on a plane. But to make it real, <laughs> this is part of NASA's 2020 uh, mission, along with the Perseverance rover, which actually landed on Mars in February of 2021, so just recently. And now two months later after it landed on April 19th, Ingenuity successfully completed the first powered controlled extraterrestrial flight by an aircraft. How cool is that? We, we, we are the aliens. <laughs> We've invaded another world in a, and we, we come in peace. Um, but this thing took off vertically. It hovered. It landed uh, for about 39 seconds in total. So not exactly uh, uh, you know, a very long time of flight, but it has actually been flying 29 times successfully. Um, as of June 11th, 2022 this year. So very, very impress impressive. And the breathtaking thing here is that imagine being able to figure out how to fly on Mars where air is thin, the gravity is about a third of what's on Earth, and you know it took years and years of work. Uh, this huge challenge uh, for developing a craft that was essential to, to fly you know, on a mission, it was all about software uh, to make this thing completely you know, practical and possible is phenomenal. Now, the software uh, that powers the Ingenuity helicopter is actually called something called F Prime, and it too is open source. An open source software powered the first flight by humans on another planet is phenomenal. 
um, F Prime is also a reusable multi-mission flight software. It's, it's actually a framework designed for uh, for Cube satellites fundamentally. Now today, this software has been used for commercial satellites as well as obviously flying on Mars. Uh, and the open source project was you know good enough to use by NASA. It took about twelve thousand developers by the who contributed to that open source project. Many of whom did not ever realize that the project would make its way onto Mars. So imagine now, of those 12,000 developers have contributed, um, imagine that. Maybe they couldn't go to Mars, but their software did. How cool is that? That is, it's incredibly cool. Um, mm. Absolutely. So open source, good enough for NASA here. Now, I'm making you promises that, you know, open source projects will take <laughs> your bits and bytes of code to other foreign planets or perhaps solar systems in the future, but you never know. But you think about it. There are, there are other things like... Open SSL. Think about <laughs> all the transactions, the TLS transactions that are being secured cryptographically today, open source. So, you know, it's it's kind of everywhere. I know. Did you, but did you know that even TCP IP V6 is actually meant to be designed for interstellar communications? I didn't know that. There yeah, we go. There you go. So it's the address ranges. It's all, what it's all about. Imagine having enough IPs that you don't have to do any kind of netting. So you don't have to net through Mars, gateways or anything like that. So IPv6 is the way to do it. The way to go. Although I'm sure there'll be other variants by the time we start to get to other planets. Maybe I'll learn IPv6 by then. <laughs> so look, I'm convinced on the open source bandwagon, but how do you get started? And more so if you only have one computing device. And believe it or not, you know, other than the, I've got four Raspberry Pis and a rack, the only device that I use in this house is my trusty Windows laptop. Now, if you manage to catch the Stack Overflow 2022 developer survey, which is a survey, if you're not familiar, that developers, there's about 70,000 developers that responded. They talk about how they learn, how they level up, which tools they're using, what they want to use, and so on. There was two stats that were really interesting to me. Four in 10 people now use a Linux-based operating system in their professional lives. So I'm not talking Mac OS S here, Linux-based, and that Windows subsystem for Linux is now used by 15% of developers. Windows subsystem for Linux has kind of come out of nowhere here, you know, a stellar rise. And, you know, it's the real deal in terms of being able to provide you on Windows that real Linux experience, which is why it has become so popular. Yeah, and look, uh, a bit of a thing that maybe people may not know, but um, this is the second incarnation of Windows subsystem of Linux, essentially on Windows. There was something called SFU, subs, uh, subsystem for Linux. Unix. Uh, so Unix it was, yeah, SFU, thank you. And I remember actually, uh, I actually met the program manager back in the early 2000s who was actually doing this. And he and I were both in the green room in uh, <laughs> Auckland's, Auckland uh, at TechEd, uh, a long, long conference for Microsoft. And we were hacking around and we managed to compile Apache under Windows with GCC compiler being ported. And we demonstrated this this whole thing where you could actually access a .NET SOAP application on IIS by fronting it with an Apache uh, process when Apache thought it was running on Linux. Uh, so yes, we've had a bit of history with that and now it's taken us off you know, a couple of decades to now make it available once again. And look, part of the reason why we want to have this is that the coding experience of certain programming languages feels better or different or more native in a particular platform. C Sharp on Windows is, feels very native and many other languages 
result perhaps in better, more seamless developer experiences under Linux. Now, Linux is incredibly popular. It continues to rise for professional, but also for personal uses. And when you look at the stats, uh, all of us from IT pros to developers need to be perhaps vested in multi-platform because uh, no one single hammer solves all problems when you think about it, mm. right? And as a user who spends a lot of time in a shell, uh, and I like to like to build, as, as you've just heard, uh, it's nice to use perhaps one device as opposed to multiple devices. And my desk, by the way, at the moment has multiple devices, and I RDP into everything through my through my Mac, believe it or not, into my Windows box and to my Raspberry Pis, and I SSH into a a whole bunch of things throughout the house. So. When you think about all of these various Linux distributions uh, and the Windows subsystem for Linux, it does reduce the barrier of entry for adopting a whole bunch of new things. And look, you know, you can have your cake, you can eat it. Uh, and starting from Windows 10, that's when you could actually find this functionality. And I think uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux is actually a great way to help developers and builders run Linux environments on Windows. And look, if you're not using it today, there's one thing I think we would both like you to walk away with from this episode is to go ahead and enable the Windows subsystem for Linux. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, it's on Windows 10, Windows 11. Uh, it will allow you to literally open up Windows, command line tools, utilities, and applications that perhaps you may not experience or have easy access to. And you can do that directly on your Windows box, unmodified, without any extra overhead or additional virtual machines or even the uh, the wonderful, exciting joy of dual boot. Gosh, dual boot. Uh, <laughs> blast from the past here and Indeed. breaking your master boot records on your hard drives Ooh, and this and that. Yes. Yes. So look, I recently... And when you got it wrong, how many times have you de- deleted the wrong partition when you did that? <sighs> No, I actually haven't done that. It must be. Oh, really? Different. I did it mate, way too often. <laughs> too many different boots options. But I think the point is here, right? It's just it's hard to have this overhead of you know having to manage this and that. I love Windows Subsystem for Linux, and it's a big reason why I use Windows 11 today. Look, I recently did a demo on this. Um, I had the latest, you know, Ubuntu 22.04. On one side of my screen, PowerShell 7 on the right. It's not only cool, it's very practical. It's allowing me to run natively on the same device. You know, Pete just mentioned before Apache. I can run Apache. I can run MySQL. I can do GCC compiling for C++ on my device. I can use Rust, Go, Python, and beyond. It's lowering the barrier to use the right tool and to upskill on other technologies. And... I like to have a single device. I want to use the same single keyboard and mouse. I don't want to use a KVM. There is a great Raspberry Pi KVM thingy that you can do from these days, but I still don't want to use a KVM. I want to have a single device and I want to use the same file system, which is fantastic because Windows subsystem for Linux allows me from a Linux distribution to access my same file system and vice versa. So I think it's just great. And look, it's uh, having the ability to run Windows and Linux on a single device with the same file system. Yeah, I'll have that. Thank you. So WSL, so Windows Subsystem for Linux, was you know, just an example here from Microsoft around you know our open source journey, and it's pans about two decades now. Now, this is not just about you know Windows, Office, and SQL. We, we're, we're much bigger than that. Shane, to your point, and I think embracing open source has been a real journey for us, and we're still on it, and we're going to continue. Um, as a software company, especially Microsoft today, we approach software 
essentially like a software company should, right? It's been that we're not here to just focus on one thing and open source is a vehicle to provide access to that software to a broader, broader ecosystem and get feedback on that, to be able to refocus and make sure our tools are much more efficient, our processes take into consideration things and make it easier for developers, to your point, to build applications, to use, contribute and release software, either for their own purposes or for open source purposes as well. Um, and open source journey really is a large journey for a large number of people in a very large community. Uh, and we have been open sourcing many of our tools uh, that we find useful ourselves and share it with the community so that they can discover with, with us uh, perhaps ways of using it or maybe improving it. And the open source journey has been long for us, probably longer than perhaps most software industry companies. Again, uh, we do acknowledge it's not always been an easy step forward for us, uh, but we have taken many steps now uh, in terms of learning and using the open source opportunity uh, to be able to reach a much wider ecosystem today. So Shane, when did we start our open source journey? So I had to look this up and it's astounding. You gave part of the answer away when you mentioned two decades. Our history Indeed. you know, in open source has started in 2001. So that's a phenomenal amount of time. We're slowly, you know, being incrementing and getting better along the way. But the first thing we really gave back was the Windows Installer XML Toolkit. I wonder, Pete, if you have used it or Wix. I used to love Wix. I used to be a big, big person who used to, uh, I probably, wait, probably even now, know way too much about some of the switches and flips you can do to registries. Uh, including making sure you can get applications remediated to run on a newer operating system when the apps have been built for an older <laughs> older version of Windows, perhaps. So you are the registry Yoda. You know all those HK current control set where everything is? I don't know about Yoda, but let's just say I, 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 have, I, have, um, I have worked with the force. <laughs> okay. Um, so look, yeah, we one of the first things we did was, was Wix here. And look, we collaborated internally on Microsoft to meet a common need for an application installer. It became a core part of the Visual Studio product. And today it's used by lots of customers, even the MySQL installer here. So that's kind of where our journey began. You know, other noticeable things was F Sharp, you know, was created in 2005 with, you know, Microsoft's Don Syme, you know, as a designer and architect of this programming language. And it's still one of our most popular open source projects today. And look, yeah, you mentioned uh, shared source, by the way, and shared source was actually part of the .NET runtime and it's in the common language runtime. Um, so I actually cut my teeth uh, working with Microsoft when I was still at academia uh, on .NET runtimes. And uh, so again, that was a, a really interesting foray for Microsoft to get into the open source space. But look, unknown to many, Microsoft really is one of the largest contributors to, for example, the Linux kernel. Um, by 2009, we had contributed over 20,000 lines of code and, we've contrib and we still continue today to contribute on a number of fronts, as you mentioned, you know, whether it's Linux in a form of CBL Mariner that underpins many of the Azure services that you are probably using today uh, and hopefully love them as well, but also many of our other open source collaborations we started work on many, many years ago and these are still thriving. So all these but goodies, you might say, uh, are things like PHP. Do you know that? Linux, uh, Node.js, even Java, Apache Hadoop, uh, and many other technologies that one would not necessarily associate with us here at Microsoft. And if you fast forward, you know, Microsoft still participates in many open source communities and creates 
you know, many open source uh, contributions around key technologies that help our customers and partners to collaborate even more. Uh, and even things like around cloud, the CNCF, the Cloud Native Foundation, we are key contributors and participants and stakeholders in. Yeah. Um, you know, if uh, our listeners put in, I think it's Project Orion. Is it a Project Orion? Yeah. Are you looking for it now? I am. Uh, <laughs> there you go. The real-time show. This is not just a just a podcast. It is actually uh, evolving and we're riffing in real time. Project Olympus. So look, if our listeners put Project Olympus into their favorite search engine, you'll see a lot of the uh, server designs in Azure, top of rack, rack designs, et cetera. We contribute back to Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Really interesting. If, if hardware is your thing and you want to get a better understanding, on how Azure works, pop Project Olympus into your favorite search engine and you can learn more. That's pretty exciting, Shane. So it look, is. Yeah, look, so judge us by the actions that we have taken in the recent past, you know, our actions today and also into the future. And, and this is why today, you know, many of our um, classics are available online. If you want to check out uh, some of the catalog, by the way, uh, go and look at our GitHub repo um, and see what resonates with you. Uh, for example, in March 2014, we released uh, open sourced MS DOS 1.25 and 2.0 via <laughs> the Compute History Museum. Uh, why did we do that? Well, it's because it's much easier to find, read, and perhaps refer to the MS DOS source files if you are ever doing that. Uh, <laughs> if it's in a GitHub repo, you can quickly browse to it, check it out, make changes, um, and see the original, uh, you know, uh, source versus trying to actually download the compressed archive files and actually try to decompress mm. them and then go and find the stuff you're looking for. So so personally, look, I love it. Um, this is where I first started playing with DOS as an example. Um, there was also a bit of a stint with the Amiga uh, in my in my previous history, uh, but still DOS was very much the go-to environment many of us, perhaps uh, Shane of our generation, <laughs> yeah. we've discovered way before playing with the GUIs of today. Ah, the Motorola 6800 on the Amiga. That was pretty cool. 68,000. The 6800 was a different different CPU, but similar architecture indeed. um, You're absolutely right. And, you know, putting the notes together for this show, I clicked through the GitHub repo. I had a look around. Things like CheckDisk. I always used to use it to find bad (laughs) sectors, um, you know, why my games weren't working or this and that. It's really good. But the, the pivotal moment for me that really made me think, hey, we're serious about this. And that line in the sand was 2018 when with the acquisition of GitHub, that clear, large, you know, purposeful step to reconnect back with the community. And there was plenty to talk about when GitHub, you know, when we acquired GitHub, a lot were fearful. Some may have just been averse to change, but, you know, it's only motivated us to grow GitHub and further embrace open source. So we're serious about open source And we take this seriously. It's not a pet project here. It's at the core of our open source strategy. We even have an open source programs office at Microsoft. And its goal is pretty straightforward, to make it really easy for individuals and business units within Microsoft to include open source in their strategies. And it's public. So if you want to learn more about this, just go to HTTPS, opensource.microsoft.com. And, you know, you can learn more. And Shane, this is really popular because I've had a number of conversations with customers who are actually interested in potentially open sourcing projects, both within large organizations, 
but also take it one step further and take it outside of the bounds of the organization and truly make it inclusive and provide that code accessible to a wider audience, as well as gain by doing so by having contribs and pull requests coming in from mm. other folks who find that same tools of, of value. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of information there, more than we've got time to talk about today. But the short of it is, look, each business unit here has the autonomy to create their own open source strategy. And that may look different depending on you know the product. So the developer tools division with projects like VS Code, you know, you've got TypeScript and .NET, then it's going to look a little bit different maybe for the Windows operating system, which just recently open sourced the Fluid framework. You know, they share what they need to share or what they believe to share to help create these healthy, thriving communities. So if we look at it from a, a story in numbers, uh, there are some really large numbers. So you've already mentioned that uh, our developers here at Microsoft are using 60,000 open source components, which make up nine and a half million places within our code where that stuff actually gets used. Now, this enables our teams essentially to focus much more on innovation and doing the heavy lifting and rewriting code that somebody's already done. Um, and also when we create software in the open, the distance between the developer and the customer tends to shrink. Now, what that means is that developers no longer need to go through the support, sales, or product management to learn how their software is being used and what customers actually want. As an example of this, if you look at it online, um, it's the Kubernetes roadmap. We've made it public. It is our essentially open access so that you can comment on and influence our roadmap. Um, so if you need a feature in AKS, uh, perform a pull request and tell us what you would love to see. Now, we also focus on cloud native development in a number of different ways by making writing of microservices even easier. And it's not just Kubernetes with projects like DARPA, Helm, and Keta. Uh, so our upstream contributions to the Linux kernel spans, again, multiple decades. Our work in around Linux has expanded to secure hardware enablement, testing thousands of Linux images at scale to make Kubernetes easier for everybody to adopt. Um, it's even easier for developers to use, which is, again, kind of important if you want to make Kubernetes successful. Uh, Microsoft has also tripled the number of employees who participate in this project essentially in just three years. So with projects like DAPA uh, that enable customers to use event-driven portable runtimes for building microservices on cloud and also at the edge. We are working on making Kubernetes way more friendly because let's face it, it can be complicated when the whole idea of pods, clusters, and so on is a little bit too much for a lot of people. So we're trying to help along the way. So we're also making this uh, these contributions easier for a variety of different programming languages and web frameworks and technologies. I've already mentioned Node, but there's Python, there's PHP, and a whole raft of others. For example, our TypeScript programming language, um, you know, which is developed in the open, has helped many folks to build better, much more scalable JavaScript applications, as well as our work with those projects and um, those communities has allowed many runtimes and compilers to be far more effective and efficient, often deeply in the plumbing. You never see the contributions unless you're going to Git and look for those names. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's about tooling, interoperability, and ease of use. Yeah. And Pete, we often talk about source sharpening here, you know, building this, building that. And mm -hmm. one of the conversations that's kind of vanished um, is around the IDE here. Oh, yeah. So you know, there's tabs and spaces, but another topical comment had always been probably up until about five years ago, what's your IDE? Do you use Eclipse? 
who's Adam? Um, you know, that was a common question, but it doesn't happen anymore because today that question has been answered. Largely answered and may, maybe solved for now. And look, IDs come and go in, in, in flavor, uh, but they only come and they go when there's no ecosystem that supports it. And when you think about what's been happening, so the free built open source model is everywhere. Uh, and even for the humbly, <laughs> humble Raspberry Pi, when you think about what we've done with Visual Studio Code as that IDE that you're just referring to, it combines so much simplicity of the code editor. Uh, you can run it on a low power device all the way to very high end, you know, high end servers uh, so that builders and developers uh, actually get to execute the, you know, edit, compile, build, debug cycle. It's really, really important. And it has such a large ecosystem of um, functionality, um, navigation, usability, understanding, and it's also deeply extensible. There are thousands and thousands of, and this is by the way, growing every single day, of extensions ranging from Python linting, Jupyter Notebooks inside Visual Studio Code, uh, to being able to SSH remotely to, to, to servers, again, for a bit of admin, code deployment, container management, running with headless devices. And Visual Studio Code has really taken the world by storm. And that, you know, what we have seen is that Visual Studio is an example of really the new Microsoft and how our product launched back in 2015. So that's seven plus years ago now. Uh, has become the number one development tool with over 74% of respondents in open in uh, Stack Overflow's developer survey actually using Visual Studio Code. This really has redefined code editing, you know, period. Drop the mic yeah. moment. It's drop the mic moment. It is the standard. Even that Home Assistant uh, home automation platform has a VS Code snap-in to edit. Like I it, didn't know that. All, That's cool. It, it's brilliant. It's It's amazing. VS Code is just, there is a plugin to do this and a plugin to do that. Works <laughs> the really Swiss well. Army Knife of IDEs. I would it is, it. yeah. But, you know, if it's the Swiss Army Knife of, ID, of IDEs, there's containers out there. And we love containers on this show. And look, before we pivot into Azure and open source, let's quickly talk about containers and even has an Australian lens here. So in terms of container orchestration, we know it's Kubernetes that has you know, it's popular, more than two-thirds of container deployments worldwide are using Kubernetes or maybe you call it Kube or K8S, whatever you call it. We'll stick with Kubernetes. But the challenge with containers, well, actually one of the many challenges is you probably need a way to control what end users can do on the cluster, you know, compliance, policy, etc. And with Kubernetes, how do you ensure compliance without sacrificing developer agility or maybe that operational independence? Now, the answer here is Gatekeeper. So in collaboration between Microsoft, Google, Steyr, and Commonwealth Bank, yes, Australia represent, Gatekeeper was born. And Gatekeeper was really created to enable users to customize the, um, the admission controls via configuration. So not via code but to essentially be able to bring awareness to the cluster state. And Gatekeeper is really a customizable um, webhook for Kubernetes that allows you to enforce or deny policies. So without uh, diving into too much detail here, Shane, Gatekeeper really is looking at 
the audit log of what Kubernetes control plane is doing and provides the ability to actually audit um, and apply policies to the cluster. Uh, and in the case of Azure, these events are actually surfaced in the Azure Security Center. So for example, um, Gatekeeper allows you to do things like, you know, all images must be um, uh, fetched from a certain repo. Uh, and if that image doesn't come from Docker Hub, you may not want to deploy it. Or maybe it's the opposite. You have a special repo that you only want to allow containers to be uh, fetched from and launched. So things like namespaces, for instance, on your containers must have a label that points to a point of contact that actually owns that particular container. You can actually enforce those policies and the, the list just goes on. So Gatekeeper really is uh, now a part of the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, the CNCF, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and is used by many organizations um, be it in Azure or in other places. And, you know, open sourcing can come out of a bank like the Australia, like the <laughs> Australian um, Commonwealth Bank. And hello to my friends there as well. The big four banks. All yes. right. So look, from our discussion thus far, I hope you can tell that, you know, as an org, we are diving headfirst into open source. But you may be asking, how are we making Azure a great place for your open source needs? We've spoken a lot about software. You know, there's things like Kafka, you know, the canical... In distribution, SUSE, MongoDB, these are technologies that the world relies on. Yes, they're just a click away on platform. And often a lot of these will compete with our native offerings. And, you know, we're, they're welcome to. So when you are building, it doesn't matter if you are using Nginx, you know, that popular layer 7 load balancer, or Azure Application Gateway, it's the same process on platform. And I'll get to a little bit more in that in a moment. Um Actually, no, I'll, I'll pivot to that, right? So we're talking about, you know, a story of openness that's at the core of Microsoft. Mm -hmm. We've just spoken about Nginx and Azure Application Gateway. Well, Nginx has been integrated into the Azure command line interface, the Azure CLI. It's got hooks into Azure Monitor. So it is a first-class citizen on Azure. You know, you've got the same operational benefits from your tooling, your CI/CD process. You've got that single-pane point of view with Azure Monitor. And you can leverage, you know, that rich telemetry to make decisions on platform. So it's not a marketplace offering that's just running. It's actually got hooks into our platform here, Pete. And look, an open source approach when it comes to Azure is quite simple, Shane. Be it Microsoft developed or open source, Azure really is the platform of choice for, to, for you to run your bits of code. Right? There is really no differentiation when it comes to the products. Now we're talking first-class citizens as the way we're just describing it with native integrations. Um, and again, whether it's PHP <laughs> working in concert with App Service Engine through to the popular in-memory databases like Redis uh, or Nginx. Um, and when you actually integrate, unlike many other providers, we are integrating with native functionality and we're not forking open source projects and calling it our own. We're actually connecting um, add APIs, open sourcing the connectors. Uh, and by the way, we haven't even covered our, our Onyx uh, story around some of the things that we've been doing around making AI mm. and AI frameworks even come together. That's possibly another show. Let's uh, put it on the backlog. Mm. Yes. Let us know if you want to hear about it. And look, if you parse the Azure update post, a great way if you're not familiar is to use the Azure heat map. Um, I love using that. Just comes and gives me that visual overview of the frequency of updates and different technologies on Azure. It's a community-run initiative. It's not an official Microsoft initiative. Um, so plus one to thumbs up to the person who has created this. It is actually one of our um, architects, by the way. 
where you can I did try and access it once and yes. it was like, hey, I'm out of credit. You have to come back, you know, in 10 more days or something like that. So kudos to this uh, individual. Fantastic. But what I get out of that is, you know, it's Kubernetes, it's Postgres, it's Cosmos, it's MySQL, it's functions. And a lot of the, our core engineering time is being spent on a lot of open source projects. You know, they're competing with our native offerings and that's okay because we recognize that's what's driving innovation and that's what builders want and are building on. So with every day that passes, we are making it easier for popular open source stacks to be deployed on Azure. But we look, we're also a tools and technology company, Shane. Now, given our product heritage here at Microsoft, we're releasing lots of technologies uh, and giving those back to communities. So .NET Core is another good example. It's cross-platform, so you can run it on a, on, on, on a Mac through to a Linux or a Windows box, um, a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> I have done that myself. Uh, and it lets you run your application anywhere, right? It's also in Azure and you know beyond a wider set of frameworks to help developers get more traction and take the software to, again, a wider audience. And to your commentary earlier, you got a, you know, I've got an iOS phone, uh, you're an Android. Well, actually, technically, all these things have to converge with the right levels of frameworks, libraries, abstractions, and by being open source, you're making it so much easier. Yeah, for sure. And look, let's quickly talk about SDKs because I know we're running out of time. Look, we're getting there. It can be a little bit hit and miss depending on your needs, but by and large, it is getting better. You know, five years ago, it was hard work trying to find Python examples on how to do this and that. But today, not only is Python a first-class, a first-party citizen on Azure, so first-party SDK support, we've been doing it for four years now. There are hundreds of Azure projects available. Sorry, there are hundreds of Python you know, libraries available for all Azure services. Mileage may vary, but Python, Node, Go, Java are first-class SDKs alongside our native C-sharp and PowerShell offerings. And look, like everything else in life, it is a journey. Um, we could have not gotten here without your support, our customers and listeners, and asking us to do better. So please do drop us a message on a forum or in the Azure portal and do let us know what is important to you, whether open source or other things are kind of uh, you know, at the top of the list for you so that we can actually you know, contribute, evolve, and develop. So look, we've only scratched the surface here today, Shane, and our open source journey is not ending by any time soon. It's still going from strength to strength. And look, we have covered a wide variety of content here today. And I'm so glad our listeners that you've joined us today. And I hope you've learned something along the way. And look, to recap, we started out with talking about why open source, perhaps the engineering economics that it graces you with so that you can invest in higher value tasks that are truly business differentiating for you and your organization. And we also took a journey through history a little bit and uh, uh, history, space and time, if you like, and explored how Microsoft has pivoted as an organization and how it's gotten to, to today uh, via its open source approaches, its community building, its efforts, its uh, opening up to a wider set of eyeballs. So perhaps uh, to Linus's commentary, Shane, um, there are you know more shallower bugs out there. Correct, yeah. Space and time indeed. We even went to Mars today, Pete. We did. Okay. So look, Azure, look, it's enabling and making open source easier every day, you know, meeting our customers the world over, you know, on their terms. Our platform is no longer a Microsoft platform. You know, it's an open, open source smorgasbord of platforms. The Microsoft Cloud is for everyone, you know, from SDKs like 
Golang and Python through to CMSs like WordPress and machine learning frameworks. You know, we'll meet you where you are. Open source has changed the software development industry, absolutely, and consequently, many others. And we've witnessed firsthand our transformation as a company. It fosters innovation and attracts developer talent. So we are all in in open source, and we want you as a developer building the future on our platform to embrace open source and collaborate with us on you know what's next. So hopefully you liked today's episode. Let us know. Drop us a message at GCTC, getting closer to the cloud, at Microsoft.com. And until next time, keep on building. And then hopefully keep on open sourcing it once you've built it. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye. I like that. <laughs> <laughs>